and I'm going to do this in two parts, this Sunday and, and then the Sunday after next Sunday. So we'll cover these, we'll study these, uh, these uh, nine verses in two, in two Sundays. But let me, let me read the entire section for you. James 4, 4 through 12. James writes, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not slander one another, brothers, and he who slanders a brother or judges his brother slanders the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Second highest selling book in history, second to the Bible, of course, is John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, written in the 1660s and 70s by Puritan John Bunyan, in jail by the Anglican Church for preaching the gospel, since its uh, initial re release, it has never gone out of print. It's a record that continues to this day. And the book is an allegory of the Christian life. The, the writer of the book sets the premise in a dream that he, has a, that he has about a boy named Christian who is on a journey to the celestial city. And the celestial city represents heaven, of course. And throughout the book, the the, the author, John Bunyan, writes a story of all the trials and tribulations Christian goes through before he arrives at his final destination. On his way to the celestial city, however, there's one of the towns that Christian and his friend Faithful pass through is a, is a town called Vanity. And in this town, there is a fair called Vanity Fair. The name is called, uh, is called Vanity Fair because the town where the fair is held is lighter than vanity and, and because every, everything sold at the fair is also vanity. Vanity, this Vanity Fair has been at this, at this location for thousands of years and because a Satan knows that every pilgrim has to pass through Vanity Fair, he has filled the fair with all sorts of Vanity, Bunyan writes in this fair, quote, there are houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Delights of all sort, wives, husbands, children, masters. Notice, in this list, there are evil things and there are also good things because even the common grace gift, gifts of God, when elevated to, to gods that we worship, can keep us out of the celestial city. And every pilgrim must travel through Vanity Fair. 
It is an unavoidable place to go through. John Bunyan writes again, the way to the celestial city lies just through this town where this lusty fair is kept. And he will go to that city and yet not go through this town, must needs go out of the world. In other words, we cannot run away from Vanity Fair because we cannot run away from the world. We are not to be of the world, but we must also live in the world. 1 Corinthians 5.10 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did, not all, I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the greedy and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. See, Paul says, you, 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 if, if you weren't to associate with all the sinful people of the world, that would mean you would have to go out of the world. And obviously, we, we can't do that. We have to live in this sin of fallen world, which means every day on our way to that celestial city is a day spent living in Vanity Fair where the world bombards our hearts with idols of worship and idolatrous wares that, that continually tempt us to forsake our Lord Jesus Christ. The main theme of the letter, as you know, has centered around the pursuit of a wholehearted Christianity, a, a kind of life where your love for Jesus Christ is pure and undivided. He wants us to keep both the eyes of our hearts firmly fixed on the glories of, of Christ until he returns. James has been trying to make sure we, we stop trying to live in two cities at once, Vanity Fair and the Celestial City. We can't have both places. We can have either one or the other. And those who enjoy and love Vanity Fair too much or for too long prove that they were never meant to live in celestial, in the celestial city in the first place. James 4, 4 through 10, our passage for uh, this uh, Sunday and the, and in, in two Sundays from now, uh, with the addition of verses 11 and 12, is the, is the heart of James's letter. James in these verses gathers up all the specific issues that he has so far been dealing with in this letter, uh, issues like the tr our trials and having this consistent faith, the, the, having a right view of God, a part, the problem and, and the sin of partiality, the nature of saving faith, the tongue, authentic wisdom from above. He takes up all of that and he puts it into one all-embracing demand in, this, in these verses. In that sense, then, this paragraph stands apart from the flow of the argument and, and constitutes a section of the letter in its own right. Do you recognize the world that you live in? Do you know that you live in Vanity Fair? Do you realize just how dangerous Vanity Fair is? For those of you who have unknowingly and unwittingly or knowingly and purposely fallen in love with Vanity Fair, James has a powerful message for you this morning. Let me give you three points at the start, and we'll go through these uh, in two Sundays. Uh, the first point, uh, the worldly roots of a divided heart. Point number two, the heavenly remedy for a divided heart. And point number three, the audible revelation of a divided heart. Point number one, the worldly roots of a divided heart. Verses 4 and 5. In the front of my house, there is a small grassy area 
that if you wanted to plant a, a few flowers or, or plants or a couple of small trees, you could. And so when we, when we first moved there, though, the only thing in, in, that, in that front mini lawn was a small a dead tree about four or five feet sticking out of the ground. Um, and it was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty ugly to look at. And so wanting to beautify the, the front of my house, one day I, I decided that I was going to cut down the tree and pull out the roots. It's, it, it was really small, easy enough. And so I, I began sawing the dead trunk of the skinny tree sticking out of the ground. And, and that was pretty easy. But, but removing the root of the dead tree, that was a lot harder than I expected. I first dug around the tree, and then I sawed off the, the big parts of the of the root, and then I just at the rest of it, I just tried pulling out pulling out the rest of the root system, and and and, and no matter how hard I tried, uh, it proved to be unsuccessful. The roots of the dread, the dead tree had had grown so deep and and had so wide that till this day it's still in the ground. In verse. James reveals to us what the root of a divided heart is. Now just to be clear, when I say divided, a divided heart, a divided heart is not literally the metaphysical description of what our hearts actually look like when we're unfaithful. Uh, inside, we literally don't have half of a heart devo devoted to God and the other half devoted to to sinfulness. No, uh, when I say divided heart, I'm simply, I'm simply meaning the, that it's the description of the experience of somebody who tries to worship Christ and to love their sin simultaneously. The term divided heart could be the description of a person with the, with the Holy Spirit unsuccessfully warring against the flesh of the, the flesh of their of their of their fallenness, or, or it can be the, the description of somebody who says they, they have faith, but whose absence of fruit and works demonstrate an empty, self-deceived self profession. In, in James 4, James, uh, James uh, verse 4, James says that the root cause of a divided heart for God is friendship with the world. You see that phrase there in verse 4? Friendship with the world. That which is dividing your heart is your love and affection for the world here below. The source of all your spiritual schizophrenia is an idolatrous attachment to all that is earthly and temporal. The meaning behind friendship is this it's not like the kind of uh, kind of friendship that we can think of it today where you might have a, a friend on Facebook that you never met before. Do you have those friends? And they post pictures, and, you, and for years you look at pictures of a stranger you've never met. And that's not the friendship that James is talking about. He's talking about a, a deep and close and intimate friendship. In the Hellenistic world, friendship involved the sharing of all things both spiritual and physical. It was a, a, a oneness, a unity of, of core, core issues. It is the kind of friendship that you would have in a marriage where to have the, the same friendship of the opposite sex with someone not your spouse would constitute adultery. And that is why James calls believers who have chosen to be friends with the world adulteresses in the beginning of verse 4. That's how he addresses uh, the, the people of God. You, you adulteresses. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now, some of your Bible translations use the masculine form of this word, or, uh, or some use both masculine and feminine, but the original manuscript most likely just had this one word in the feminine to describe an unfaithful wife. The imagery of an unfaithful wife isn't because James is only speaking to women. He's addressing both men and women with this feminine term. But James uses this one feminine word, adulteresses, because he's reaching back for a word picture in the Old Testament where the prophets often described Yahweh as a faithful husband and Israel as an unfaithful wife or an adulteress. For example, among many places, Jeremiah 3.20 says, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. But it's in Hosea that this imagery of an adulteress reaches its pinnacle when the Lord commands the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. And this marriage serves as a, a lived-out metaphor for Yahweh's covenant relationship with his people, Israel. Yahweh was Israel's faithful husband, but Israel was an adulteress whose friendship with the world manifested in the worship of idols. That's how friendship with the world manifests itself. Israel wanted to return to Egypt and they wanted to worship Pharaoh. Israel worshipped the idol of a, a golden calf under Moses. Israel worshipped the idols of Baal under David. And dur during Jesus' time, Israel worshipped the temple as an idol instead of the God of the temple. And this is how our friendship with the world rears its ugly head. When we worship idols like Israel did, we choose to be friends with the world and hostile Toward God. When we love anything more than the Lord, that's an idol. When we choose idols to worship and trust and obey and follow, we are establishing ourselves as enemies of God. The earthly root, again, of a divided heart is friendship with the, with the world. And whenever idols in the world lead our hearts astray, we, go, we become people with divided hearts and divided affections and divided allegiances. What are some of the idols of the world that, that you have chosen to love and worship? Who do you fear and delight in? Who or what rules your behavior? What do you hope in and, and need not name Jesus Christ? Who or what is the main source of your motivation? Idolatry first starts within the fallen desires of the heart called the flesh according to Scripture. That's what James said in James 1.14. But each man is, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when, it, when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. But these idolatrous desires of the heart, they work in tandem, they work in coordination with the fallen conditions of the evil world system they, that we live in that is outside of us. There is an internal, external, interdependent relationship and dynamic. Whenever you sinfully desire something, the world, in response, 
offers you the means to satisfy that desire. We never sinfully desire in a vacuum. But the world does more than that. The world also woos you and encourages you to satisfy even more of the sinful desires of your heart. The world is, is, is constantly pouring gasoline on the inner fire of your sinful lusts. For example, when the sinful heart seeks pleasure in sexual sin, there are thousands of images that you can go to that service and inflame and exacerbate these pleasures. When your idolatrous heart wants comfort in laziness, when it wants to escape from all the responsibilities that God has given you to serve Him and His kingdom, you have a, a, a Netflix television, television series where the end of every episode tempts you to watch just one more and one more. There is this coordination. There is this tandem that, that recognizes the laziness of your heart. You see, the idols of, of your heart and the idols of the world, they, they, they conspire together in this, in this unholy harmony, in this lustful dance to enslave you in sin and in misery. When you want to get drunk, there are people in the world that you can find who want to get wasted with you. There's entire streets and, and establishments that want to service this desire to escape and get intoxicated. If the ambition of a career rules your heart, you live in a culture and you work in an, in an environment at your company headquarters that affirms all of that, that idolatrous ambition. It supports it all. It, 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 it even mandates it sometimes. If you make exercise and diet an idol, you can find a plethora of businesses and other people who, who want to run alongside you in this idolatrous pursuit. If you want to turn away from Christ and, and worship a real false god, there may not be Baal temples anymore, but there are Mormons and, and Buddhist temples that put specificity and cultural legitimacy to your false worship and desires for apostasies. You see, Satan has so fashioned the external world around us to meet all the demands of the sinful desires of your heart. Satan is, is, is God has sovereignly allowed Satan to be the ruler of this world, and he has so uh, uh, planned and furnished our environment according to the blueprint of that plan is your sinful heart. He looks at your sinful heart and the outworkings of that, and he establishes society and culture and government accordingly. We turn evil and good things into idols with no help from anybody else. If we were placed in a desert, we would still sinfully lust after things. We tempt others to worship the same idols we worship. It's often not alone. It's, hey, come on, join me. Let's be a part of this. Others tempt you to worship the same idols they worship. Sins and temptations you never had before, now you're thinking about because a friend or a peer group has tempted you to do so. David Paulson wrote, people are idol makers, idol buyers, and idol sellers. We wander through a busy town filled with other idol makers and idol buyers and idol sellers. We variously buy and sell, woo, agree, intimidate, manipulate, borrow, impose, attack, or flee, end quote. 
All of this happens in Vanity Fair. The idols of the heart work in tandem and in coordination with an idolatrous world established by Satan. And number and next, our, our various idols, they imitate God's character and identity. Our idols imitate God's character and identity. Idols pretend to be God. They pretend to be the creator and the savior and the sin bearer. They pretend to be the lawgiver that you must obey. Idols, they make false promises to you and they, and they tell you that if you, if, if you only had this idol, then everything would be all right in your world. If I only had this right thing, that everyone, that everything would be better. If I, if I could only get married, then everything would be fine in my life. If I could only make this amount of money, then everything would be, would be, would be fine and dandy. If I, if I could only live in this house, or if I could only look this way, or if I could only lose some more pounds, or if I, if I could only have this position or role in the church, then my life would be complete, and I would finally be happy. That's what idols lie to you and say. And then when you get some of that or all of that, your heart, like an idol factory, turns out more idols that make even more false promises, and now you're, you're right back where we, you started. Now we're, 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 we're in Egypt again. Now we're under all the, all the foremen and our taskmasters. We're under, under Pharaoh, and, and we're making more bricks and looking for more straw. False gods create false laws. They come up with false definitions of success and failure. They, they, think up, they think up false definitions of value. They promise blessing if you succeed, and they curse you if you fail to keep all of their laws. If I could only have this amount of money in my bank, then I would be secure and, and safe. If I, if I could only get these certain people to like me and respect me, then my life would count for something. These false gods even have their own songs and, and worship teams. Every, almost every secular song on the radio is about some idol they love and want more than Christ. It's about some relationship or money or, or violence or some glorification of some pursuit. And this leads me to an important question I want to ask you. If this, if this kind of, this, this idea of idolatry is new to you, I want to ask you, I want to, kind of pose the question that, that how, do we, how do we begin to recognize all the idols in our heart, in our life? That's the first step. First step of turning away from this idolatrous love relationship with the world to Christ is to first recognize what are all the idols in your life? What are all the idols in your heart? You need to pinpoint that and identify that and recognize that. And so if you want to kind of want to kind of know what these specific false gods you worship, let me suggest that you first start by examining all the so-called needs in your life. What do you feel that you absolutely need? Is there something you, you just have to have? And then once you begin to identify one of those needs or some of those needs, then you want to check if any of those felt needs are things that God promises to give you in Christ here on earth. 
And if they're not, then these perceived needs are probably just expressions of idolatrous desires and worship. You might think, well, uh, and think I need, I need to be respected by my wife, or or I need to be loved by my husband, or I must, I must reach this level of success in my job, or I'm a failure. Or you might feel and think, I, I need my children to turn out this way, or I need to have another drink, or I must have my sexual desires satisfied. Now, for some things, desires are legitimate uh, manifestations of human existence, but when these desires become all-or-nothing needs, where if you don't get what you desire, you feel like your life will unravel and fall apart like a Lego toy your child has just dropped, that's when you know that even a legitimate desire has turned into an idol of worship. When these self-perceived perceived felt needs rule over you, when these needs affect your behavior and actions in notable, noticeable ways, when you fear deeply about, about not getting these needs or losing these needs, when you put all your hope and trust in these so-called needs, James says to you, you have chosen to be a friend of the world and an enemy of God. And James says that it's this friendship with the world that is the root cause of a divided heart. It is friendship with the world that produces an earthly wisdom that is natural and demonic. It is this friendship with the world that leads to all sorts of disorder and every evil practice. When you've chosen to become a friend of the world, James says you will be partial towards others. You will slander and curse people with your mouths. You will exhibit bitter envy and selfish ambition. It is friendship with the world that is ultimately behind all of your quarrels and conflicts. It is this friendship that fuels prayers that are filled with wrong motives and sinful pleasures. Do not fall in love with Vanity Fair because Vanity Fair will destroy you. Because Vanity Fair will kill you. Why does God become an enemy to those who love the world instead of Him? Why is He so concerned about His children? Why can't He just leave me alone and, and do what I want? Well, verse 5 says, because he loves you with a holy, jealous love. Verse 5 says, or do you think that the scripture speaks in no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, this is a quite, verse 5 is a, one of the most difficult uh, ver, uh, verses in, in the New Testament to translate. And the the reason being is that in the Greek New Testament Greek language, the Koine Greek, there is no set word order. Words can be in different orders. And because of that, that means the spirit here, it could be the object of the sentence or it could be the subject of the sentence. Some of your translations have the spirit as the subject of this of verse 5. Some of your translations have the spirit as the object. Uh, some tr now, the spirit could refer to the Holy Spirit or it could refer to the human spirit. Um, and so uh, some translations reflect that. Now some translations that you have, they make spirit, they choose to make spirit, lowercase s, or human spirit, the subject of the sentence because the word for jealously desires 
is, is, is always used in the New Testament to refer to a sinful desire, and it is never paired with God. But if you, cha- if you take that direction, it makes the translation, uh, it makes the flow of thought there a little bit awkward. Others take spirit and make it the object of he jealously desires, and it makes the subject of the verb he jealously desires God's based on the immediate context, based on the flow and the argument of the immediate verse. And that's the, that's the view that I take. I think the NASB and the LSB have translated that correctly. And, and, and yes, uh, yes, jealously desires other, use, other where, use elsewhere is always referred to negatively, but that doesn't mean it can never be used positively even, the, even, in the, even if it's just one time in, 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 this, in James in the New Testament, because there would seem to be enough in the immediate context to justify that. Also, I think, and I think this is the, a bigger reason, whenever you find the word spirit and dwell together in one verse in the New Testament, it is always referring to the Holy Spirit. So that means that the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit could never negatively or sinfully desire something. That combination of spirit and dwell together in the same verse, it almost appears like it's this uh, formula for reference to the Holy Spirit. So that's the case. Then verse 5 would mean something like this. You adulteresses, don't you know that your faithful husband loves you with a perfect jealous love? Don't you know that... Do you think that the, that the scripture speaks vainly when it says that, 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 that God is not indifferent to your idolatrous friendship and your divided heart? And that kind of jealousy, by the way, is the most appropriate kind of love a, spo- a spouse can have for each other. If you were unmoved or if you were indifferent by your spouse cheating on you with another lover, it would actually prove you didn't love your husband or your wife. And Scripture, over and over in the Old Testament, speaks about God's jealous love for His people. Ten Commandments, in the Second Commandments, the Second Commandment, Exodus 24 and 5, says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the Water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Zechariah 8.2 says, thus says, Yahweh of hosts, I am jealous with great jealousy for Zion, and with great wrath I am jealous for her. God's jealous love for you, the bride, the church, brings with it great consternation when his bride chooses to love another false god and become friends with the world. God loves the new creation of every believer. He loves every believer with the jealous love in whom the Spirit permanently indwells. The Father, He paid to give you the Spirit by the blood of His Son. He paid an infinite price so that you might be faithful to Him. To love a false god, therefore, is the highest betrayal. The love that you and I have in the gospel of Christ is a love, it is a supreme love, so much bigger and better than any sort of temporal pleasure your false gods could give you. 
Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten the infinite riches of Christ's love in the gospel for you? Christ, he bore the curse that you deserve. Christ is fully pleasing to the Father and he gives you his own perfect goodness. Why would you spurn the, the rich, deep love of God in Christ for a trinket or two? In Vanity Fair, in Christ, God is the, the waterfall of endless spiritual pleasure. He is the satisfier of every good desire of your heart. And yet, the illicit tugging strings of our selfish lust, they, they constantly pull at us, don't they? That the world's siren call is never ending. Though my sinful flesh is, is always inside of me, it's always there, it's part of me, it never rests. It's always there. And every day I have to go out and live in Vanity Fair that calls out to those desires and say, hey, sinful desires, you have a friend right over here. Let's get together. Let's have a good time. And sadly, some of us, if you're honest, have chosen to become friends of this fallen world. And we are living like God's enemies. And, and we just don't know what to do. We feel so hopeless, or, or even worse, we don't even care. We're so indifferent, so indifferent to the spiritual condition of our hearts. And what hope do I have when I, when I don't even care that much? The roots of our flesh, they, they go so deep, they are so extended, extended out into the outer reaches of our soul. And then the temptations of the world, they're so pervasive and all-encompassing, it feels like an unwinnable battle. It feels like I'm in, the, I'm in the Alamo where no matter how hard I try, I will lose in the end. I am outnumbered, Pastor, by all the, the sinful desires of my heart. I am outflanked by all the external temptations and vanity fair. What hope do I have? What axe is sharp enough to cut the earthly roots of a divided heart? What shovel can, can dig deep enough to pull out all the, the extension of the worldly roots of a divided heart? And James says next that the answer is more grace. More grace. And this leads to our second point of the morning. The heavenly remedy of a divided heart. The heavenly remedy of a divided heart. James gives us two remedies for somebody with a divided heart continually falls over and over in love with vanity fair. And the first, the first remedy is found in verse 6. We need more grace. That our only hope is more grace. Not trying harder and harder and harder. We, we've done that before and, it, and it's failed us. No, verse 6. He gives a greater grace. Listen to me. No matter how hard the struggle it is to remain faithful, there will always be enough grace for our situation and need. Did you hear that? No matter how hard it is to stay faithful to our, to our Lord and Savior, there will always be enough grace for our situation and need. It is always there because He gives a greater grace. And the Greek word behind the word greater is the, is, the, is, the, is the Greek word megas. We get mega from it. God gives mega grace, in other words. One lexicon defines the word megas this way, exceeding a standard and therefore impressive. It could be translated great with a focus on quantity, degree, or intensity, rank, status, important. It's translated elsewhere, very exceptional or outstanding, 
Here it is used comparatively to communicate that as great as our offense is toward God when we love the world, and as weak as we feel at times when the sins of our hearts and the temptations of the world conspire together, together against us, God's grace is greater. It's greater. The kind of grace that James is referring to, it's not the common grace that all, all people everywhere have. It's referring to the saving grace that Jesus Christ died on the cross to give you. James is referring to the grace that removes the guilt and penalty of your sin. He's referring to the grace that changes the inner life of your soul. It is the grace that cleanses you from the pollution of sin by the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. James is talking about the grace that changes our hearts and makes us perfectly willing to accept Jesus Christ unto salvation. It is the grace that makes our hearts yield obedience to the will of God. It is the grace that makes you and I able and willing to accept the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the grace that makes us able and willing to produce spiritual fruit. And it is a grace that is immediate and supernatural because it is wrought directly in your soul by the immediate energy of the Holy Spirit. God gives this kind of grace in the greatest measure. John 1.16, speaking of Jesus, says, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. This is mega grace. An artist once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, but he forgot to give it a title. And so the, the gallery, faced with the need to supply a title, came up with these words, More to come. Old Niagara Falls spilling over billions of gallons per year for thousands of years has more than met the needs of those below. And it is a good picture of the flood of God's grace for the believer. There is always more to follow. Jane Blanchard said, For daily need there is daily grace. For sudden need, sudden grace. For overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. Christian, whatever your condition or your situation, God always gives more grace. What God demands of us, yes, it is the highest standard of love and obedience because He's a holy and jealous God, but His, His grace is completely adequate to meet those requirements. God's demand for our total allegiance may seem burdensome, they may seem even terrifying, but our God is, is all gracious to meet these all-encompassing demands. Him, writer wrote these words about grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his, he's, his, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed before the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. You need more grace. But there is a condition for this. There is a condition for this. And the condition is humility. Look at verse 6 again. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
James quotes Proverbs 3.34, and he says the condition for grace is humility. If you think you need no grace, if you're like, well, I can do it on my own, it says that you're proud. And if you're proud, you will get no grace. And this heart of humility becomes the dominant prerequisite for all of the commands you'll find in verses 7 through 10. That God's gift of sanctifying grace, powerful grace, overwhelming grace, mega grace is only enjoyed by those humble enough to admit their need for grace. If you've never begged for grace because you never met the precondition for grace, the precondition of humility. You see, the proud and the arrogant, on the other hand, they only meet resistance from God. See, God is opposed to the proud. And this opposition to the proud and His grace toward the humble is a, is a, is a recurring motif in the Old Testament. Psalm 18.27 says, For you save an afflicted people, but eyes which are lifted up you bring down. Psalm 34.18 says, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The gravity of grace works like the, the earth's water system, which always flows down from the highest to the lowest. Just as the, the waters of Niagara roll over the falls and plunge down to make a river below, and just as that river flows ever down to the even lower range of its course, then glides to still more low-lying areas where it brings life and growth, so it is with God's grace. Grace's activity carries it to the lowly in heart where it brings life and blessing. Grace goes to the humble. And this is the spiritual law behind the proverb that James quotes in verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you will not bow your knee, if you will not bow your heart to God, you will not receive God's unfailing grace. It may descend on you. You might have access to this grace through the Bible and, and through prayer and through the corporate gathering of the saints on Sunday. And you may have access to this grace through the relationships you have in the body of Christ. But if you're proud, grace will not penetrate into your heart. If you're proud and you're arrogant, grace will drip away like the falling rain on a, on a statue. But the afflicted, but the brokenhearted, with the crushed in spirit before God is immersed and even swims in God's Atlantic Ocean of grace. And so, it, while there is always greater grace to be had, it is reserved for only the lowly and the humble. And it's this humility that is required for James' rapid-fire commands in verses 7-10. through 10 verses we'll examine together the next time we meet in James in two Sundays. You see, in, in the Pilgrim's Progress, the Christian, he makes it through Vanity Fair. Yes, he's bloodied, but he comes out with a, a purer heart. As big and as bright as Vanity Fair is, for Christian, there was a bigger gospel with a greater grace that rescued him. And it's this grace that rescues you and me from our personal sin and the vanity affair of our world. That is a, and it's this grace that is able to give us a pure and undivided heart. But you have to bow the knee with broken and humble hearts. 
And so let me end our time with verses 7 through 10, verses we will study next time. James says in verse 7, Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray.